Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He has a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto. He's the author of many books, including Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and most recently, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. For the past few years, Stephen has been touring the world with musician Gregory Hoskins and their Nights of Grief and Mystery, which I had the chance to check out last year in Ottawa, Canada. Some of you might remember that I had Stephen on the podcast last year around this time, talking about his book on elderhood. That conversation left me with a lot to wonder about, and this one is no different. What is different, perhaps, is that in this episode, I think you get to hear more of Stephen's lighter side in part because it's an aspect of him that really comes out on stage when he's with his band, and it's something that I wanted to talk to him about. We also talk about what it's like for him to find a new vocation as a frontman at this stage in his life, the creative process behind Nights of Grief and Mystery, the connection between grief and joy, and, as well, Stephen offers his thoughts on another provocative Canadian figure, Jordan Peterson. As with any time I engage with Stephen's writing or talks, the aperture through which I view the world was widened a little more after this conversation. So I hope that you can take the time to give it your full attention and give his words the consideration that I think they deserve. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes, 
share it with your friends, or offer financial support through a one-time donation or by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can find out more at medicinepathpodcast.com. A special thanks to Chris from Peru and Christopher from the U.S. for your generous donations. Putting these podcasts together is a lot of work, and any support that you guys can offer is greatly appreciated. Okay, that's all for now, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Stephen Jenkinson on The Medicine Path. I'm gonna take a little walk Through them fields Gonna carry me gently for my heart to heal I'm gonna find me a demon in a dark, dark wood You can't come with me I wish you could well, I was born I was raised Yes, I was loved and I was praised When I got scared Oh, my mama did on me With a cross and a prayer man, To keep harm from me While I take my little walk Through them fields Thanks a lot for joining me again, Stephen. This is your second time on the podcast, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I appreciate it too. Frequent flyer points get you everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so how's your day going? What are you up to these days? Oh, cutting down brush in the field that's been ignored for too many years. And what else did I do today? Oh, Practicing uh, like crazy on the guitar for the upcoming tour. Yeah, I did that about three hours. And um, and I got up. You know, it's a full day so far. Yeah, great. So you're at your farm? Yes, sir. Not very often am I here, but uh, I have to reintroduce myself to all the acreage every time. Hmm. Well, in the time since we last spoke, I had the opportunity to catch one of your Nights of Grief and Mystery in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And when I told my wife that I got us tickets for Nights of Grief and Mystery, I'm not sure that she was super enthusiastic about the prospect of what that might be. Mm-hmm. But uh, we were both surprised, I think, at how much levity was in the show. And I thought um, for a guy known as the Grief Walker, uh, that you're actually really quite funny up on stage. <laughs> And uh, I noticed that you really seem to enjoy yourself up there with the band. That's true. And I'm wondering what what this has been like for you to find this new vocation at this point in your life. Is this something that you have always wanted to do? Oh, completely not. <laughs> no, I'm a very reluctant front man uh, when everything's going well. And then you factor in four people and a quarter million dollar budget. And this is a recipe for utter mayhem and some extraordinary bruising on my Protestant ethic. (laughs) 
So all of that has come into heavy scrutiny and rack and ruin, I would say, over the last couple of years. But it's obviously it's never too late to rock and roll. I mean, that's one thing. Although, you know, I've been introduced more than once as the guy who's responsible for a night of grief and misery, they call it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they say the same thing about another guy from Montreal. Yeah. Not that I'm from Montreal, but uh, but he was. And, and he was, his entire life, he was... Um, you know, weighed down with this notion that he was, you know, music to slit your wrist by and all this kind of thing. Hmm. This is much more a comment about the dominant culture than it is about Cohen and his work or me and mine. By the way, I don't intend any comparison, but just in terms of the the accusation and the kind of grim estimation that 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 adult scaled endeavor comes into uh, contact with. That's it's just extraordinary that that the only gainful employment that adults should be engaged in is to distract everybody from being an adult. I mean, I, I just, you know, for the life of me, I ain't going along with it. Let's put it that way. It's not that I don't understand it. Sadly, I, it's very familiar, but, but I don't think it's respectful in the least of an adult audience that you, that you undersell every conceivable important part of life and turn it into um, something frivolous enough to get over by the end of the evening. I mean, mm. I don't, why would anybody even pay for that? Never mind exchange one of their precious nights, the ones they have left on the off chance that something of real merit could, could occur, which is what I'm counting on. And I think the people that come to it, they're kind of self-selected to a certain degree. Usually one of the couple has some passing familiarity with things I've been trying to do over the years. And the other one is something like your wife, which is to say <laughs> the reputation of, of you personally <laughs> and your relationship is riding on it, you know? <laughs> and so, so you may have had some personal, let's say, uh, feelings about the last, um, the last story I think was the one in which I was in Fishguard, Wales and, uh, and we take that story and, and do a kind of sort of medicine show, revive, tent show revival treatment of the whole thing and um, see if we can get everybody to cakewalk out the door at the end, you know, and be aroused by the distinct understanding that their days are numbered. Now, if you can imagine that being a rousing finale, but I think, I think in the Ottawa show it was, as I recall. Yeah. yeah. And people were very excited in the foyer afterwards at the prospect of not lasting forever. Yeah. Well, it was definitely a unique experience uh, in that I felt like the evening was one of those rare occasions where the audience was invited into something very intimate. Yeah. And it didn't quite have the feel of a performance, but it was more like a ceremonial space was created. And we all left uh, you know, my wife and I and our friend, we left full of wonder and for myself feeling a little more alive. And I'm wondering that when you and the band are getting ready to go on tour, do you talk about having an intention for these shows? We don't really. Um, we establish a kind of set list, which is, which is a kind of allegation. That's what I call it. And that's that's something about our end of things. And then where we end up two and a half hours later is much closer to an amalgam of willingness on the part of the audience and capacity on our part. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and if one of those things is missing, then you have a standard quote unquote sort of performance. You know, the distinction you made earlier, I think is a good one that um, um, ceremony, I think in human history predates spectacle or performance by many thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. I'm, I'm quite sure of it. Uh, I was interviewed towards the end of the last tour last fall, about a year ago. And it was in that interview that something occurred to me as to what we're doing. And it's wonderful to be asked about it because you, you're obliged to wonder about it in a way that internally inside the band, you don't wonder about it in the same fashion. <clears throat> and it was sim- quite simply, it's this. You know, the Greeks have given us our understanding of theater. And in so doing, they gave us two conceits. One of them is a thing called the audience, and the other one is a thing called the script. And the script is there to guarantee something happening and to omit almost everything else. That's what it's there for. It's a very, it's like a 15-minute wedding, you know? A 15-minute wedding is established to make sure nothing happens. And a script, even the best ones, are, are there to, to shut down the mayhem and the, the up-for-grabs sensibility that enough people in one place could, could properly bring to bear. And as far as the audience goes, well, I think what the Greeks did was took the understanding of ritual and perform and, well, ceremony, and they established non-participants, if you will. They established this notion of, um, of you know, watching at a distance, which is what the words to speculate means. It means to observe at a great distance. And in um, so doing, I think they, they closed the circle around the performers and saw to it that nothing would intrude into a set piece, if you will. Mm. And the nation, the notion, excuse me, of ritual and ceremony is that it's anything but that. I mean, it's everything's up for grabs and the stakes are very high and, and there's no such thing as spectators. Uh, everybody's who's there is in a large measure responsible for their end of the outcome. And to sit there inert or to exercise the kind of Caesar function of approving or disapproving is the most meager kind of deep participation that you could possibly imagine, I think. Hmm. So I, I suppose what we're doing is, is old. And in that sense, it's deeply unfamiliar to us modern people. But uh, I think if you, if you come, as you did, come to the language of ceremony or ritual, some understanding of what actually happens there becomes available to you and it's a wonder and and because there's no script you know we on stage we're we're as how should i put this well i'll I'll come to it another way we're very careful what we say about it and the reason for that is it's not clear that it belongs to us i think it's entrusted to us for a while but it requires a very soft hand, if you will, that doesn't seize it by the neck and try to wring meaning out of it, but rather we, we serve the evening and, and we serve the stories and the music and so on. And by serving it, I believe we're por- performing a service. And if we were to plan it overly, like you stand here, I'll do this, that kind of thing, it's, it not, it's just a matter of spontaneity that disappears. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of 
you've assumed entirely the sense of control or authorship or authority over the, over the proceedings, which you have no business doing because the truth of the matter is, although, you know, we're proud of our part in it, we didn't really invent this thing. We, 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 we looked up one day and there it was. And it's, it's kind of like a baby, you know, once it's there between you, you have an obligation to proceed in its presence. That's what it was like. And it came, it appeared to us as a kind of cluster of imperatives that awaited articulation and, and elaboration. And that's what the, the show became. But the imperative remains mysteriously from somewhere, somewhere else. And I'm really thrilled and relieved, for the most part, that we're not in charge of it. Hmm. I heard on a recent interview that you did that you're working on a book about matrimony. Mm-hmm. And knowing you, I figure that there's a specific reason why you chose to use that somewhat old-fashioned word. And so, of course, I went and looked up the etymology of that word. Oh, very good. And found that it means something like mother-making. There you go. With the original idea, I suppose, being that when man and woman are wedded in holy matrimony, it's for the purpose of procreation um, and making the woman a mother. But when you're talking about being on stage and co-creating something new with the participation of the audience, the word has come into my mind that there's something uh, in that marriage of you guys on stage and, and the, the audience that there's some third thing that's born out of that. And that's always kind of new and mysterious. It's no, it's well said. Although I would go back to the beginning of your observation about the etymology of matrimony and think about this um, for those people who might be overhearing us now who are largely into counting the genitals in every situation. (laughs) If this is not too indelicate a way of saying it (laughs) and all that inclusivity and such, I mean, I've never heard anybody howl with indignation that a man is obliged to enter into matrimony. I've never heard it. I've never heard a a qualm about it. And, uh, and there is no equivalent for a woman entering into patrimony just by the way. Mm. So, so this is a very interesting proposition that a man is obliged into matrimony. So it's not quite clear to me that the meaning of the word is, this is a prelude to making the woman a mother. Mm. Because both of them are entering into the state of matrimony, not just the woman. Right. So there's something about being mothered by virtue of the willingness to enter into this understanding or this, uh, this union. Uh, I, I don't think it's a... It's, it's a really a function. It's not a gender-rooted uh, <clears throat> proposition. It's a function. And it says, among other things, that the woman does not have the market cornered on things maternal, nor the man on things paternal, you see? And it, it's, it's much more a matter of finding your way rather than looking between your legs and taking your marching orders there. Yeah. The, finding your way, and not just together but separately too. So if we take that understanding and apply it to, to this uh, Knights of Grief and Mystery endeavor, maybe, maybe it's closer to this. 
that what we do subsequent to the evening is that third thing. Mm. It's not actually our time together. Our time together is a kind of mingling of uh, aspiration and desperation and, you know, solitude and, um, um, you know, a sense of foreboding about the near future. I mean, all those things are there. And this doesn't sound overly promising. And how could anything of real merit, substance, and inflection towards a better day possibly arise from this? I think a lot of it has to do not just with the spirit that we come together in, in the evening, but rather what kind of responsibility we assume as a result of being gathered into such an unexpected thing. On our end, on the band's end, our responsibility is to rise up, uh, go down the road, and see if we can do it one more time, standing on the shoulders of what we were able to achieve the evening before. That's really how I understand our fundamental obligation is, is to be, um, how should I put this, to insist that the most recent evening becomes a kind of parent to the evening that looms before us. And that kind of, that sequential begetting, there's something very magical about it all, provided that we see to it that the next morning is not just, quote, the morning after, but it's, it's the story now. Yeah, you know, that rings really true to me because anytime uh, I've, I've been with you, you know, in the Orphan Wisdom School or read your books or listened to you in interviews, without fail, afterwards, I'm always left wondering about something. And that might, you know, that might be an inquiry that lasts years in some cases. Mm. Uh, and so it definitely, there is that moment of, uh, I don't know, watering a seed or something that then continues to grow in my life and, and starts to transform the way I see myself in the world and the way I think about language. Um, yeah. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about your work. You know, after I released uh, our last conversation, um, I got a comment from someone and it was from a woman who said that she felt frustrated that you didn't give a clear answer when I asked you about cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like a lot of people are looking to people like you for clear and simple answers, like they're looking for some guidance on how to feel about things that are really quite complex and resist easy answers or uh, black and white opinion. And so one of the things I appreciate about you is that you always leave me with more questions than I had before. Mm -hmm. uh, I've come to value being in the place of wondering and not knowing. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do you ever feel a pressure to, like, do you ever feel this pressure from people to give some clear answers and elder guidance? (laughs) No, never. Of course, man, all the time. (laughs) All the time. I mean, that's, that's basically, you know, what an audience end of things tends to reduce people to. Hmm. is the expectation that, it, that a, a consumer normally has about the marketplace. I should know how to operate this thing before I buy it. I should know what this thing tastes like before I eat it. I should know what I look like in this thing before I wear it. I mean, <laughs> oh man, I, 
it's not that I don't understand the demand to be satisfied and to be edified, but the notion that the people who are making that demand have no part to play in that operation is abominable, frankly. And I'm simply not guided by the market pressures. I should be, I suppose. It'd probably be better for, quote, business, whatever business I'm in is. (laughs) But as my accountant says to me routinely when I see him in the spring or summer or fall, because it's getting worse and worse, then he says to me, well, you're very successful for a one-man act and your business won't be worth a cent at the minute that you die. Right. Because I'm not building any equity, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's just me. And those kind of comments see to it that I simply can't franchise this stuff out. You know, whatever this stuff is. I mean, as you said, this is a means of principled inquiry. This is not Ann Landers, okay? <laughs> so I have no responsibility to satisfy people's desire to be told what to do. I, I just don't. I'm not bound by it. Uh, I, I feel the expectation. But fortunately, I'm old enough now that I don't need um, people to, quote, go along with me, unquote, at any given time. You know, my life is, is deep and, and very fortunate, minus people's general satisfaction with me. So it only gets better if there's any satisfaction. And if there isn't any, it stays the way it is. Yeah. So I don't mean to say that I'm above it all, because I do, I mean, I get a lot of unkind stuff come through as well. And that unkindness generally is a, is a frustrated um, expectation that the deepest rumination results in simplicity. What it results in is clarity. And God knows there's nothing necessarily simplifying about clarity. Clarity is not that sought after because it's too unforgiving. In other words, if the, circum- if the dilemmas are clear, then the failure to take action becomes an indictable offense, mm. and not simply a matter of difference of opinion. Yeah, and there's something about clarity to me that relates to uh, openness. Um, and in openness, there are just so many possibilities and so many more questions like if you're actually seeing clearly that means there's no blinders on there's no limitation and that doesn't sell well you know it's not a it's not a 12 rules for anything (laughs) that's true that's why that book is doing so well yeah and god bless him i should say because i deeply appreciate the fact that that man's out there yeah, you know what? I, I considered asking you about him because uh, Jordan Peterson is talked about by a lot of people. And uh, so someone that I've been uh, working with, learning from is Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. And he has a few critical things to say about Jordan Peterson. And and Jordan Peterson, because I think he, he's so much in the limelight right now and such an influence on particularly young men, um, I think he you know, that other people, some of his colleagues, if you will, often uh, get asked about their opinion of him. Um, I wasn't sure I wanted to go there with you, but since he came up, I mean, what do you think about uh, his message and the way he talks about the the Bible and uh, 
personal responsibility and all of that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a couple of things. One is, like I said, off the top, I'll say thank God he's out there and he's bringing his considerable uh, capacities to the matters at hand in the marketplace. I mean, that's just a wonder. And I'm very proud of him as a Canadian for starters. And as a, as a man of his generation, I'm very proud of him. Okay, that's one. Two, um, I wish he wouldn't take as many gigs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By which I'm simply saying that I think there's such a thing as the willingness to weigh in on virtually everything. I mean, I don't know if he actually says, I don't know anything about that next question. Hmm. But, uh, but there, I, think, I think you spread yourself unnecessarily thin if you take on everything, imagining that your kind of principled inquiry is up to it at any given time. Third thing is, I, I wish he wouldn't box himself into the circumstance of, of being in a debate, like a bear pit format. Mm. I mean, it's extremely caustic on the human soul, I think. And I can only guess what it does to him to be in a kind of baiting situation, like virtually all the time. Yeah. And then fourthly, I don't think this man has any personal responsibility, given his notoriety, to moderate how you know how he comes to the things he comes to because he can be quote misconstrued or or used for nefarious purposes by any extremity or anything of the kind i know that's a standard uh, imprecation that's delivered to him that he you know how do you feel about you know being so popular with the right and all of that sort of thing as if the whole world divides into left and right and all of that stuff but i just i, I don't you know, that's peop- what they do with his stuff is their responsibility, not his. If he leaves 10,000 threads that can be woven into a, another totalitarian uh, cloak, well, maybe that's a tremendous problem. But I don't see him doing that. I see him, um, you know, taking seriously the problems of the day and uh, bringing, you know, considerable skill to bear upon them. And then treating people like they're grown-ups to a certain extent and not moderating himself so that he can't possibly be misapprehended and that he becomes a darling of the kind of moderate, vaguely left, or what, you know, whatever the demarcation is, and, and um, you know, subject to complete misapprehension everywhere else. Now, his genius belongs... And I wish people would just assume some responsibility for what they do with what we're lucky enough to have from him. Hmm. Yeah, very well said. I think that's a really fair read on him. And and I think like what you said about him taking every gig, I feel like I could see that in in him and hear it in him when uh as you know, as his career progresses, uh it does seem to be wearing him out and uh yeah i I, I should tell you p.s sorry to interrupt but i've had a number of people who i don't know uh write to me and say that i should be in touch with him directly and offer him you know counsel (laughs) Hmm. because he seems to be coming frayed at the edges and uh you know i don't make a habit i'm I'm not on the internet as a rule and i you know i i I hear about many of these things secondhand 
So I'm not really sure what it is that's concerning a lot of people about his, let's say, well-being. But I did watch something recently. And his voice, of course, was on the edge of seeming to crack mm-hmm. like the entire time he was up there. And I don't think that was a matter of wear and tear on his voice. I think it was closer to what you said. And my response to these people was uniformly to say, do you think Jordan Peterson needs another stranger weighing in on if they can be of any help to him? I doubt it very much. So I didn't go any further with it. But I, I mean, I hope and I trust there's people close to him who are saying something in the order of, um, you know, their arrest from this these matters is as consequential as weighing in on them. And, and you know, that's not turning away and that's not betraying anything. Yeah. I mean, even uh, Gabor Mate has spoken quite openly about this, that as he's become more and more well-known and the demands on his time have increased and he's constantly saying yes to these opportunities that it's had a detrimental effect on his uh, physical and, and emotional well-being. Um, and I mean, you seem busier than ever <laughs> at an age when most people are usually thinking about slowing down and retiring. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like for you, what what's driving your work these days? What's driving it? Yeah. I'm not sure that I describe myself as driven. Hmm. But I'm lucky enough to have um, some lucidity about why I'm still alive. At this, I'm not that I'm old, old, but I just had my 65th birthday, so that qualifies one for at least the briefest of retrospections, right? Yeah. And as I look back on it, it's, it's far from given, you know, like many people, that I'd still be around today. And the fact that I am means essentially that I'm in the bonus round of the of the operation. And that seems to confer upon me two things. Where I, While I'm not driven, I would describe myself as possessed of a sense of urgency um, about the enterprise. And I'm, I really welcome it, I should say. I don't, I don't feel it. It's not involuntarily seizing me by the scruff. But some days... It's not, uh, what I mean is, I, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm just immensely lucky that the, the apparent reasons for my birth have coalesced into a gig. And, um, and that people are willing to consider these things in small numbers. It'll never be otherwise. But, um, and the fact that I'm still upright and that the basic machinery is, seems to be in reasonable working order, given what I need from it. Um, I couldn't be luckier. You know, you might have expected me to say I couldn't be happier. That's not true. But I'm not sure that my personal satisfaction is is really the order of the day or, you know, cause tune. I mean, my personal satisfaction is a kind of byproduct of showing up for duty. And, uh, you know, the last book, the book about um, elderhood, was... Like if I don't write another one, I'm I'm quite happy for that to stand. It was, it's literally a much better book than Die Wise was, in my opinion, and and the scope and the breadth of it and the the um, the kind of um, call to arms that's in there. I mean, I, I'm you know a year and a half down the road from its publication. I'm I'm very proud of it and I'm pleased with it, and I can see that it won't sell anything like the way Die Wise sold which is generally a sign 
that probably what I was after, I got pretty close to. Hmm. Generally speaking, what I hear is that older people feel, they say condemned by a lot of stuff they read in there. And this is, uh, with all due respect, it's a misapprehension, an unwillingness to consider. And you might think that the word I'm going to use is like splicing hairs, but um, really they're indictments. They're not accusations. They're indictments. That means, accusation means you're still yet to make the case. But indictment means the case has been made. You see, and, and not that I made it. I mean, I was able to catch up with it and put some, put some good words to it, you know, now and then. But the case is generally made today by virtue of the kind of, kind of let's say, the, the rampant despair of people in their 20s. I mean, this basically makes the case. I'm sorry, and I wish it were otherwise, but, but this much clarity is utterly required for anybody in their 50s and beyond. The willingness to see the kind of unchecked, um, unhesitating sense of lostness and extinguished possibility in the younger generation. If you're not willing to see that, um, this is the indictable fence. And then, you know, the inclination to self-improve in the face of that simply adds grim fuel to the grim fire that throws all kinds of light but no heat at all. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about how unlikely it is that a guy who started his career as a social worker ends up starting a, a kind of mystery school and touring the world doing this strange hybrid between uh, music and comedy and spoken word with a full band. And I was looking for the thread there. And I was wondering if you see what you're doing now uh, by making uh, your work public, do you see it as kind of a public service that is so getting back to what's, what's driving or what you're possessed by. I mean, it's one thing to, to write and to create music. It's another thing to uh, put it out there publicly and to, you know, charge for books and charge for tickets and that sort of thing. Um, so I guess what I was getting at is what's driving you to, to go on the road and to publish books. Hmm. Uh, well, I think they tell me, that I have some facility with the language. Yeah. Some of the response I get suggests that that's the case. And if that's true, and I'm not, I'm not pretending, I'm not alert to the fact that, I'm, that I do have such a thing. I'm glad I do. I'm proud of it and, and feel very lucky to have it. Um, it seems to me that, that is a, there's a responsibility that comes with it. It's something like having a driver's license. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. But it does mean that you conduct yourself with a great sense of privilege and a kind of ongoing opportunity to, to have a consequence closer to what you might intend and closer to what the circumstances seem to require. While you know full well that by virtue of getting in the vehicle, you are in some fashion c contributing to the kind of uh, atmospheric downturn of things at the same time. You know, if I stayed home, 
yeah, I wouldn't burn up the airplane tickets and I wouldn't, you know, whatever else I'm contributing by virtue of congregating people in one place. That's true. And I suppose I don't offer this by way of a justification, but simply as an acknowledgement that, that it kind of ups the ante on the evening. You know, I have a school in, the, in, in Europe, and the reason I offered to do it was because I was going to see what I could do about all the people flying across the ocean. If one guy flies the other way, uh, maybe the, you know, the burden of the thing is not as vast as it otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. I, re- I really do think about this kind of stuff. I mean, not every minute, but it is part of my calculation, you know. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it seems unnecessarily precious to keep whatever's entrusted to one to oneself. That's all. It's not the assumption is not that I have some vast array of riches that I include people of good fortune in <laughs> who come to what I'm doing. Not at all. But I'm not pretending that there's no merit to what I'm lucky enough to have stumbled upon. Uh, it looks like there is. And I'm, I'm, I'm led by the possibility that the evenings can be useful. And that's the word I would most choose to describe on, on their best level of accomplishment. That's what they can be. They can be useful, but it's not my responsibility to dictate their use. But it is my responsibility to show up with the, with the full array, uh, the full palette, and um, and not hold back. And I tell you, as as I don't know what this will sound like to you, but here we go. This is true. Uh, years ago, it occurred to me that this notion that your year, that your life appears in a kind of year end review at the moment of your expiration, and, you know, when you see the whole thing flash before your eyes, all of that. I think there's so many of us dying now, and more and more all the time that the chances are that the powers that be simply don't have the opportunity to review our entire output. So like everybody else, they've had to rationalize their time uh, expenditure, right? So I think probably what happens is they said, upon your death, they say to you, you did read the fine print at the bottom of your birth certificate, did you not? And of course, none of us do because we think we know what's on there. But in very, very fine print on the bottom of this birth certificate, it says, despite everything you've heard to the contrary, the truth of the matter is you do not get a life end review at the end of these proceedings. What you do get is a brief um, examination based on the last day of your life, which turns out to be something that's going to have to stand in for the whole thing. Please proceed accordingly. That's what it says in bold fine print at the bottom. Hmm. this is what I'm doing. And it's, it's no joke. I mean, I was with a lot of people who died. Many of them, quote unquote, died relatively suddenly, which means they simply didn't prepare themselves. And, you know, it behooves me to, to recognize that at some point, uh, all the markers will be called in. And at some point, I will have already had my last day, my last gig, my last time in front of people, my last story to tell, whatever it is. And if I don't proceed every time out, like this could be it, then what am I doing about the so-called future? And the answer is I'm trading upon it, some, like a kind of leveraged buyout guy in 2008. That's what I'd be, another one of those guys, not much to be proud of. So I do my best to occupy as best as I'm able 
in, a, in the fullest way I can manage the circumstance that bring me um, to your town or somebody else's town. And um, I'm glad I lived long enough to take that shit seriously. Hmm. Is there any, um, is there any like secret hope that you have when you're going out on the road, doing some teaching or doing these shows or writing a book? Is there, has there like a desired outcome of any kind that you secretly hope for that you're like an impact that your work is going to have on the people who engage with it? I don't even have an unsecret hope to be honest. Um, I, I'm just a hope-free guy. I mean, that yeah. probably doesn't shock you to hear that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't require the promise of what's to come as the real legitimization of what is. For me, the present moment is as much as I can carry at one time. So I, I'm really not um, heading towards some outcome. And this is what I meant about trusting people. You know, if, if I try to, I mean, that's another way of managing people to try to achieve some kind of future oriented outcome. Yeah. It won't be there to see. Basically you're saying you don't trust people. Yeah. You're kind of micromanaging their response and then telling them what to do with it and all of that. And yeah. I, I just don't find that respectful or um, defensible even with the grim realities that face us in the near quote unquote future for all of that. If you subvert people's personal responsibility in the name of telling people what to do, because we're in real bad shape, you're contributing to the bad shape that we're in by subverting people's personal responsibility for what they're going to do with what you make available to them. And you don't have any right, frankly. I mean, even as a politician, you don't have a right, never mind as a, as a civilian, to, to determine the outcome of what you're entrusted with. So no, I don't, I don't have any hope for it all. Uh, if, it, if it's useful, and some people sometimes tell me that it is, then I take that as kind of fair recompense for the extraordinary expenditures that are involved in me trying to, you know, mobilize. And, but I don't have a, any longer something like a normal life when I'm not uh, occupied with these matters. And that's the thing I said to you a minute ago, that I'm lucky enough to have lived this long to be able to take that seriously. Taking something seriously saves you from being hopeful about it. Yeah. I wonder if you could just... Uh... I wonder if you could just reiterate that point about um, having respect for for people and how they're going to receive your work and what they're going to do with it. Uh, how, if you weren't to do that, it, it would contribute to the problem at hand. I wonder if you could just touch on that again. It was a good point, and I'm, I just want to make sure that it's uh, highlighted. Hmm. Uh... Well, my first hesitation is I think it did a pretty good job first time around. Yeah, I, I can always back up and listen to it again. <laughs> no, 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 fair enough. It's your show. Let me see what I can do. This is like asking me to have a little more of the roast beef that you just served me. I felt like I wanted to give a hallelujah, but you kept going. I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> hallelujah is not interrupting, man. It's affirmation. Oh, okay. Hallelujah. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, what I meant by that is this. 
there is it's like what jordan peterson routinely observes now the nobody knows what the rules are i think that's one of his lines you know and he's talking about basically the gender wars i think but you could take that understanding and extend it beyond that nasty little um exchange and imagine it that it would appear that there's no consensus even about what we share as humans in this corner of the world, I'm talking about dominant culture, North America now, in terms of um, either how we understand what the near future is going to deal out, uh, our part to play and how we got here and whatever responsibility we have for acting, you know, immediately. W.H. Auden described our grim circumstance so beautifully and sadly well. He said, we would rather be defeated than be persuaded. This is what it's come to now. Hmm. And uh, apparently that's the case. So, so that's the context for me to make the observation that I did for you a minute ago about, you know, being out on the road and having a kind of public um, face to put to the things I'm making a case for and making a plea for, frankly, that, that I basically say, here's the best of what I was able to come up with on relatively short notice, you know, for 65 years, it's a, it's a, it's a blink. Right. And so, you know, up against it, this is what I've come up with up till now, uh, over to you and, um, and good luck with it. And, uh, if any clarification is needed, uh, consult the Oracle because that's the best I was able to come up with at the time. I think that's respectful. Mm-hmm. Respect to my mind means if you subvert the, the, the mandate of individual people to assume responsibility in a way that, that, that too much expertise forbids, too much kind of concentrated expertise, uh, even in terms of the cult of personality and, and notoriety and so on, all of that has a consequence of absolving people inadvertently from the fundamental place that they occupy uh, in the in the order of things. What I say in the school all the time is, you know, I will proceed as if you are people of consequence. And there's not much you can do to persuade me that that's not true. And no matter how you try to persuade me about either your in- intellectual inabilities or your refusal to consider these things or that it's not consistent with your belief system or what have you, um, I maintain that I'm in the presence of people who have consequence beyond what they intend. And that's the meaning etymologically of the word awake, as you no doubt have heard in the school several different ways. It means to understand yourself to already be caught up in the web of consequence that emanates as in awake from everything you do and don't do and say and don't say and the language that you use and the language you refuse to use refuse to use or learn and on and on and on and i think it's a respectful thing um to engage people at the level of the limits of their understanding of their own capacities i don't see that as disrespectful i mean other people don't ask that of people that's fine not everybody has to do the same thing but where i try to operate is somewhere out there closer to the edge of the limits people have agreed to live by, especially intellectually and emotionally and psychically and spiritually. 
Mm. So you could say, I ask more of them simply by how I proceed. And what gives you the right to ask more of people? And the answer is, well, the recent past. I'm not sure I have a right in that regard, but I, I have a sense of a kind of responsibility for what's become of us, you know, and where things sit. And if I'm, if I'm going too far, then let that be my offense, that I overestimated how grim things were. And in so doing, I occupied a sense of urgency that the circumstance didn't legitimize. And okay, so if that, if that turns out to be the, the jury comes in, that's what they say about my little enterprise. I'll have to live with it if I'm still alive, <laughs> well, but I'm taking a chance. Yeah, I so appreciate that. And I definitely um, feel that when I give time and consideration to your work, especially the work that challenges me or I find some resistance to, that it does help me to expand, uh, expand myself. Uh, expand my conception of of the world and myself, and uh, so I really appreciate that that you're not coddling people and that you're not you're not overly playing to the crowd because like what you said, the crowd is out there looking for really easy answers, and um, I think it's important that there's public people like you who do have such a mastery of language out there respecting people enough to, to, uh, to, to push out the boundaries. Um, so I, I just really appreciate that. Oh, you're very kind to say it. You know, as you were talking there, I was thinking of Mr. Cohen's just remarkable song called Everybody Knows. And it's just a list of, of the current allegations of what's, what, what passes for, quote, common knowledge or the water that we swim in, you know. Everybody knows the dice are loaded. Everybody knows the good guy's lost. Um, it just goes, it's an extraordinary examination of what we've settled for. Mm. And I'm, I'm not sure that it best describes any longer what everybody knows, because it's probably, you know, best 25 years on or something, which these days is an eternity. Yeah. But it's, it's so enormously important from time to time to take a breath, to lift up your head from the momentum of just contending, you know, long enough to have the current circumstances register upon you again and, um, and take their measure, you know. And, and if somebody gives you the opportunity to do that by attending to what you're doing, then the obligation that seems to come back is is to when you occupy the public position again, you understand it for the privilege that it is. You know, uh, Seamus Heaney wrote an extraordinary poem called From the Republic of Conscience, and I wish I had it memorized. But in there, he's, he's basically assigning responsibility to every cognizant person and every sentient person, particularly people in any kind of circumstance of temporary either authority or notoriety or what have you, that they know themselves to, as he say, weep for the, oh man, what's the word he uses? To weep for the presumption of holding office. 
That's what he says about politicians. Mm. Can you imagine seeing such a display that, that the politician feels no capacity whatsoever to live up to the number of votes that he or she has received and put them in that position? I mean, what would you even make of such a circumstance? Well, my good fortune is I'm not running for office and I'm constantly trying to earn my keep by occupying that position as responsibly as I can figure out how to do at any given time and catch up with my errors, uh, which, and I have frequent opportunity to do that, a lot of practice, and on, on occasionally get it right. Mm. But the whole thing, even talking to you now, you know, I understand in, you know, 20s and 30s perhaps, that what you and I are talking about will erupt unexpectedly into somebody's life, you know, driving or walking or somebody sends them, whatever it is. And then, and then suddenly you're having consequence just for a moment hmm. in the lives of people that you'll never meet. I mean, what hmm. does this ask of you? And the answer is, well, enough already with your opinions, which you can't follow for five minutes down the road and cope with the consequences of spewing them. So best either keep them to yourself or even better, have them burn away like chaff mm. uh, because that's all they are. And I was enormously lucky that I, I worked in the death trade long enough that I ran out of opinion somewhere along the way. And, uh, you know, people who are my adversaries would, <laughs> would laugh at me saying that. But honestly, um, it seems to me that what I've been lucky enough to come up with is reportage. It's not opinions. It's, it's just what I've seen. It doesn't make it precious, you know? But, it, but like I said earlier, on a good day, it might be useful. I find it useful from time to time. And it's a lot to live up to. And then occasionally somebody says something kind as you did a minute ago. And then I have nowhere to go but on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate to a lot of what you say. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a teacher myself, and uh, yeah, as I as I grow as a man, my my teaching definitely has changed. And uh, like you said, the opinions are burning up and burning away. Um, and what I'm left with, like you said, is uh, reporting back what I see and uh, sharing some of what has helped me in my life and my journey and uh, something about just passing, passing it on is enough. I don't need to always add something to that. If it's something of value. Well, your willingness to pass it along is what you're adding. Mm, yeah. you, don't, you don't need to add to the volume of the thing no. either in terms of substance or in terms of loudness, but your, your willingness to lend your voice and what some of the breath that you're entrusted with is a kind of affirmation of what you've been lucky enough to see. I mean, I think, you know, on both our behalfs, I would say that it's not easy to be a faithful witness. It's much easier to have opinions, uh, you know, to be pro and con about what you do see. It's much harder to occupy the place of fidelity to what you've been let in on. Because the cost for doing so uh, is considerable. For example, 
Yeah. You ain't never going to be invited to parties, man, ever again. <laughs> I'm not. You know, well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a party available for people who aren't invited to parties. And, but who would want to go to that? So there's, the, that, that, there's that too. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, you know, <laughs> I, I got a review from a gig I did out west <laughs> because the place asked them to evaluate me. They never asked me to evaluate them, mind you. <laughs> it always goes one way, apparently, because that's the customer satisfaction business for you. But, the, but the, one of the women, she wrote to me and she said, I want to make sure you read this. And she put it in my hand. <laughs> I really wanted to say, why don't you just tell me? But apparently uh, it had to be read. And in there she said, I just don't trust the profit thing, she said. Oh. Uh, E-H-E-T, by the way. Yeah. And, yeah. And I said, uh, I thought to myself, so? I mean, so, so you don't trust it. Well, I mean, this compels me not at all. And um, I mean, I, I distinctly remember a guy, I was in Sedona, which I don't rec- uh, recommend anybody, but in a, in a bookstore there, and uh, I'd never been. I'd heard all about the rocks. You know, rocks are nice. But what they've done with the rocks, another thing. Anyway. <laughs> Let the rocks be. <laughs> Yeah, just leave them alone and go somewhere else, you know. And, and then it's a beautiful place again. But anyway, everybody's got to make it work as best as they, best they can. But so, and I'm staying at the bookstore at five minutes to my gig time, and there's four people, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I think I've lived long enough. I shouldn't have to be in a circumstance like this. Um, but there's no way to get back to the Airbnb. Uh, you know, and I got three hours or two, whatever it was, two hours in front of me that either. <laughs> I'm going to be sitting looking at the rocks or I'm going to see if I can do what I came all this way to do. So I walked in by the time it finally starts, maybe there's 25 people there. And, you know, I don't count the empty seats. I count the full ones. So, but once I got started, it was a thrill. Like it almost always is, but there's a guy in the front row and he's just studying me like crazy. And um, like he's taking notes on something beyond the content. So at the end of it, he walks up to me and he says, uh, he says, I was watching you. I said, well, no kidding. It wasn't lost on me. And he said, yeah, I think I figured you out. (laughs) Well, that's great. I've come a long way. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not too late to be figured out. What'd you come up with? And he said, absolutely unguarded. He said, well, you're a prophet, he said. (laughs) And I just said to him, look, man, don't tell anybody that because it never works out, you know. It's just not good for business and it's not good for one's family and all the rest. And, you know, where does the observation come from? Who knows? Uh, And what you call yourself or how you understand yourself to be is irrelevant. I think it's really a matter of the function of, of what you do with the time that's been entrusted to you. And if people recognize it by some other more, um, uh, a recognizable, you know, function from days gone by or, or most, more recently. Well, this is what they say. And it's, you know, they're trying to com- compare you to, you know, the most recent novelty food maybe they had and trying to find, um, you know, comparable ways of trying to express their take on you. But really, if you're, if you're working well, then you become a little besides the point your personal style and these, these matters, you know, how you dress and they become, if you're lucky and if you're doing well, 
they're they're sort of passing things they're they're useful up to the moment when they appear and then thereafter they should properly pass away you know it's like a i don't know like an ice cream cone cone maybe that the cone is useful as long as there's ice cream and then after that while well, you're eating the handle which is a strange <laughs> food group you know <laughs> But maybe that's what the style is. It's nothing more than the ice cream cone. Yeah, the and, bread bread bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the bread bowl. That's another good one, yeah. <laughs> and and it should be allowed to be that and nothing more and not occupy all kinds of room in people's consideration of of what you're inviting them in on. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really... Uh, yeah, I'm happy where the conversation went, but I wondered uh, if we could, if I could just ask you a couple more questions and bring it back to uh, Nights of Grief and Mystery. Okay. So when I was getting ready to speak with you again, um, I was listening to the recording that you did of Nights of Grief and Mystery. Oh, yeah. And as I listened to it, I had, you know, different reactions to different things. And something I noticed that was a bit of a revelation to me was the similarity in the reaction my body had when I was touched by sadness and something you said or a, a chord that Greg Hoskins hit. And when you said something that made me laugh, and I noticed in my body that my diaphragm would like flutter or jump in, in the same way. And it would either come out as a sob or a laugh. Mm. And it struck me that there seems to be a really fine line between grief and joy. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. I don't think there's a line between them at all. I think, huh. I think the reason that they feel that they seem to occupy very similar terrain uh, for us is that, it's something like, if you think of it physically as a temperature, when you're in the kind of medium temperature range, you can discern differences between cool and warm and hot and cold and all of that sort of thing. But when you turn up or turn down the temperature, you know, in, in for example, in our climate, in the northern climate, where you have four distinct seasons, when it becomes extreme, it's harder to tell the difference. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You can be burned by cold, yeah. Right, for example, and you can be—I um, don't I'm sure it works quite easily the other way in the physics sense. But I think you take the, the the image that there's something about the extremities of our encounters with things and our and what wells up inside us that when they're very strong indeed, the distinctions between them become less and less important, and it's the the intensity itself is part of the the information, if you will. And it, one of the things it whispers to us is, you know, we, we seem to have settled for the middle ground sometimes at the expense of our capacity for extremes. And I, I don't mean by this extremes of behavior or self-expression. I mean, we're about to enter in, and probably already have into a sort of period of global extremities of all kinds. I'm not just thinking of the obvious uh, climate issues, but just all the secondary consequences thereof. And if we're not increasingly capable at the level of extreme and what it asks of us, 
and we're looking for a kind of climate-controlled existence instead, as we seem clearly to be doing now, wherein our heart becomes a sort of uh, comfort-seeking missile and, and, you know, our mania for being satisfied and feeling safe. God, there's a good one. All of these basically make us unfit for active duty in, in what we're contemplating here. Um, I think that goes a long way towards giving some context what, what you described. I should tell you that I've only listened to it once or twice, but the first time I listened to it all the way through, we were driving, and I don't know whose idea it was. There was four of us in the car, but I just pulled over and sat and turned off everything and listened to it because I realized some of those stories in particular, which were lightning in a bottle, because we didn't, uh, the mother canoe, for example, I, I haven't done that very much at all over three years, mm. maybe three or four times. That's all because, because of what it asks me to, to occupy in order to tell it properly. And I was listening to it there and I was, I was undone by it. And I was there at the time, mm-hmm. you know, but I knew we should have put an advisory sticker on that thing saying, do not <laughs> operate heavy machinery. You know, while listening to this damn thing. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and I've had many people in touch with me saying similar things. That it's just, it's, a, it's the most peculiar kind of entertainment, if you will. That there's still entertainment in it, but my God, is it mysteriously costly entertainment. Yeah. And some part of you goes, apropos of the cost, you say, what a bargain. Yeah, I would say... <clears throat> Not costly at all, actually. In fact, like quite enriching. I feel like it uh, it adds something. You know, it's not subtractive at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to end this without uh, without acknowledging Gregory Hoskins. Yeah. You know, um, seeing that show, seeing it live, Gregory Hoskins was a complete revelation to me. Mm-hmm. He hits all the right chords with me. Uh, you know, I'm a musician, and the way he plays guitar and the way he sings are just exactly what I want from from music. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really surprised that, as a Canadian musician myself, that I'd never heard of him before. Yeah. Before uh, you know, you introduced me to him. So, first of all, I just want to thank you for that for bringing him maybe to a larger public definitely brought them to me Mm -hmm. and i'm grateful for that and i was really curious about uh what the creative process looks like for you guys when you get together Uh, could you give us an idea of how one of these pieces comes together (laughs) oh my god um well as you saw we have a number of stories that are kind of kicking at the stall to get out. And then we have a number of songs and people constantly ask whether the song was written to accompany the story in some fashion because of the internal references seem clear. And the truth of the matter is all of these songs existed before we met. So he hasn't crafted any of these songs in, in service to the stories I'm telling, but we recognized in our work, some kind of mutually comprehensible uh, responsibility and commitment that we had somehow made later on in life. Although he's been, he's been doing it for 30 years or more. 
And of course, it's the mark of a colonized culture that we need uh, other people from outside to affirm what's precious and, and, and achieved among us before we tend to recognize it ourselves. And I mean, the, the list of Canadians who've gone elsewhere to quote, make it is long, illustrious and lamentable. <clears throat> and if he had gone elsewhere, he would have done much better with his life. But we're lucky enough to have met and, you know, more concretely in terms of the sort of quote, creative process, you're looking at it in the show. There's no, there's no preamble and that that's somehow the, the cream on the top of our collaboration. You're actually looking at the collaboration um, on all fours, trying to keep its wits about it as it unfolds over two and a half hours without an intermission. That's really what it is. And, you know, we, we're kind of trying to grow sort of a web of sort of mycelial connectedness, you could say, between the two things that we're lucky enough to be capable of. He with his singing and, and playing and songwriting and me with whatever it is that contribute with story, allegation and adamance. And somewhere in there, something else gets appears for a time. And, um, you know, he's self-deprecating to a fault almost. He says, occasionally this could be amazing. He says, I think it's, it's more than occasionally, but, <laughs> but he's Canadian. So you can't say more exactly. than right. That exactly. Be, be shameful if you said this is pretty good, man. And most of the time it's pretty good too, but frankly it is. But I could say it to you this way, uh, some interview we did last year, um, Right at the end of it, he starts talking about one of his formative influences was watching Manflon La Mancha when he was a kid at the O'Keefe Centre in Toronto with Robert Goulet and all of that. <laughs> and um, which, you know, was I don't know if I would have told that story, but he did. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we went into, you know, what was compelling about the story. And, uh, you know, he who he identified with was, of course, the central Panza. He loved that character and all of that. And at some level, he understands himself in a similar way in the Grief and Mystery show, which leaves me apparently occupying the tin, tin hat guy. But <laughs> somewhere in there, you know, I said, well, you know, Cervantes was on to something. He was writing about the oncomingness of the Industrial Revolution in, uh, in rural Spain. Uh, that's what the windmill's all about. And it's a monster. And he properly understands it to be a monster. And, you know, 400 years later, he was not wrong. And, and after that rendering, I said, apropos of our, our work, um, I know where the monsters are. And night after night, that's where we're headed. Hmm. And I'm glad there's two of us. Mm -hmm. And now there's five of us. Yeah, so you guys are going back out on the road, and you mentioned at the beginning that you were practicing guitar, which I don't remember you playing guitar in the first show that I saw. No, man, I've been kicked upstairs. Uh-huh. So I'm wondering uh, what the audience can expect on the, the new tour. Uh, have you changed the show, or what are you adding to it? Well, I'm trying to avoid adding cacophony. And... Uh, <laughs> But I will be plugged in, and I, I bought myself a way too expensive guitar to try to keep up with the musicianship that's around me, and I'm just going to try not to embarrass myself and, um, and get out of the way as much as possible. 
and um, that's what he's asked me to do. I, it was Gregory's idea, frankly. He knew I was playing around, you know. But when you get on a stage with real musicians, you know what your capabilities are right away. Yeah. I mean, if you're lucky and not deluded, you know. Yeah. I, I'm both, you know. I'm not deluded. I'm lucky. So, so I was, you know, I'm just trying to transpose. God, it's, you know, I'm just not that musically capable. And, I mean, I probably shouldn't even say that, but I'm, but the, the beautiful thing about it is there's something in his work that is generous enough to include uh, a nuance that because he's so occupied with the delivery of the thing, he can't do that as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'll be one of the four people that are supporting what he's doing when he's singing. And I'll, I'll leave you with this story. Uh, so we had a gig in Los Angeles last year, which is just, I mean, just to say that <laughs> is amazing. But we did have a gig in Los Angeles, and it was a beautiful recital hall, and, and the local organizers filled the place, and um, it was quite astounding. And afterwards, I, I'm in the lobby signing books while everybody else is breaking the stage down, and so I get to hear people's immediate visceral response to what they saw. So there's a couple of people that walk out of the theater, and I just recognize them. They're showbiz people, you know, actors mostly. And, and one of them comes up to me and he says this. He says, um, you know, I'm in the music business. Oh, yeah, I said. He said, so I got a question for you. How did you do that? And I said to him, well, specifically, anything in particular? He said, yeah, look, this is Los Angeles. <laughs> and we've seen everything about 40 times, right? Yeah. And you, there's two things you can't get us to do. And one of them is to sing along, <laughs> and the other is to stand up. Like, it's just not happening. And at the end of the show, we were doing both with no invitation, no prompting, no, no direction from the stage to do it. So I want to know how you did that. And I said to him, well, you did it. You did it. And we were thrilled that you did. And for a little while, man, we were in the same place taking that little walk. And, and life is amazingly good. And he said, well, I, I want to tell you one more thing. I'd heard of you, but I didn't know anybody else on the stage. And when your singer, that's what he referred to Gregory as, hmm. when your singer stood up to the mic, I said, I said a prayer. I said, please, God, let him be able to sing. Hmm. And he said three notes in, and I turned to my wife and I, and I said to her, the guy can sing. It was very high praise from somebody inside the business, you know. And, of course, Hoskins can sing like nobody's business. And uh, I get to sit there and hear him night after night, and I just wish I could be in the audience, frankly. I've never seen one of his shows, and someday I'm going to have to take the night off so I can catch the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I know you're going to be in my town in a couple of weeks, Montreal. Yes, sir. And uh, how far are you guys going on this trip? All over North America. Well, I should say Canada and the U.S., uh, about 25 or 6 or 7 cities, something like this. Uh, most of them in the U.S., uh, and the Canada Council very kindly just uh, came through with a big travel grant to help us. And they're very kind that way. And um, we must be uh, qualifying mysteriously as, you know, a couple of older white guys were obviously out of the running. But somehow, <laughs> somehow we qualified anyway. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, uh, the Americans, God bless them. You know, it's not that I would want to live there because they're sure going through it. But when an American audience likes what you're doing, you're not sitting on the stage wondering if they like what you're doing. And yeah. 
there's something so so deeply i don't know enabling about that and you know i'm very glad of it and uh so i'm i'm lucky to tour in a foreign country we we just came back from a tour of iceland and prior to that a tour of the uk so so we got a lot of road miles on us now and uh i think the show is um is exceptional though largely unknown to me but exceptional nonetheless and we're going to rehearse uh monday and tuesday of next week i think it is and then we're on the road starting thursday and off we go until the end of november and uh man what a life so i really appreciate you know all these questions and making me wonder about the thing in a very uncommon way because most people are not as thoughtful and the things that they want me to talk about and invariably you know I'm the death guy over and over again mm. but um you were kind enough to recognize a few other things besides and uh and we get to do it with uh, with a room full of people so and I'm plugged in so Jesus um you know and and my kids are watching me do it thinking who is this guy yeah <laughs> and if you live long enough to become an utter mystery to your own children Well, life is amazingly kind. Hmm. Great. So I hope we can expect a Neil Young type guitar solo in the middle of the show from you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, well, don't hope for it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for taking this time again and uh really looking forward to catching the show when it comes around. Well, I I'm looking forward to man and I really appreciate all the questions as I said, Brian. You take care of yourself. And we'll see you on the other side of the lights. Yeah, I'll see you down the road. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye bye. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling like their father or their dog just died everybody talking to their pockets everybody wants a box of chocolates at the long stem road everybody knows everybody knows that you love me baby Everybody knows you've been discreet but there were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes and everybody
old black Joe still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. And everybody knows. And everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast. Everybody knows that the naked man and woman are just a shining artifact of the past. Everybody knows the scene is dead, but there's gonna be a meter on your bed that will disclose what everybody knows. Everybody knows that you're in trouble. Everybody knows what you've been through. From the bloody cross on top of Calvary to the beach of Malibu. Everybody knows it's coming upon. Take one last look at this sacred heart before it blows. And everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowl and Branch. Sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.